Hi everyone, uh, welcome again to the Empower Women series. Today we are in the month of March and we're extremely lucky to have with us Jennifer Law. Jennifer Law, uh, an attorney at Siegel Lipschitz and Law, uh, just down the corner in, in Wellesley, Massachusetts, was one of our hosts in an event that we did last year, uh, Inflection. And uh, since then, we have been able to stay in touch with her and follow her, her career a little bit. And today, we have her hosting a very interesting topic we get often uh, from our clients and, uh, and our network, which is how to manage living trusts. And uh, so so thank you so much for being here today, Jennifer. Great. Thanks for being I'm. <laughs> having you having here. Having me here. Yeah. This is this is Jennifer's <laughs> debut today in a podcast. So I'm super excited that it's with us here at Empower Women Series. And um, Jennifer, I wanted to start with a very uh, simple question that uh, I would say the average folk uh, walking down there might not realize, but what is a trust? Yeah. Um, so a trust is basically a written contractual agreement. Um, there are three care three. Um, things that make up a trust. One is the settler, which is the person who creates the trust. The second is the trustee, who is the person that owns legal title to the property. And the third is the beneficiary, who the trustee is holding the property for. I know I know. today we focus specifically on one type of trust, which is a living trust, but, uh, uh, I, or sorry, in a living trust. And uh, But the reason why we are focusing on this today is because we get a lot of confusions between the power that a will has compared to what a trust can do for people. I don't know if you would like to explain a little bit the difference between those two particular objects. Sure, yeah. So a will is a document that you know someone puts in place in writing as well, but it only becomes uh, effective on when that person dies. So there's nothing that you know uh, the will is effective during the lifetime. So what a lot of estate planning, um, you know, when people do estate planning, should consider is having a will, of course, in place when someone dies, but also at the same time having a living trust in place currently, and that can be done by you know, setting up a trust um, today, um, designating a trustee, and then designating beneficiaries, and then moving at various assets to the trust um, concur concurrently, as opposed to waiting for those assets um, to pass through the will when someone dies. I know the title of today's event was like, why a living trust should always be included on your state planning. But um, I wanted to separate a little bit from the people that are not thinking about state planning today to those that are probably thinking about state planning. And uh, that has to do, to do with the function of uh, probably wealth and age. Like there must be a mix of those two uh, for the, the folks that start thinking of this. But who should definitely be thinking of a living trust today? So I think, you know, a living trust should be actually part of anyone who's thinking about doing estate planning. But primarily, you know, it's important um, that if you have minor children to uh, have a living trust in place because it provides for, um, you know, what's going to happen to those assets that you have. They should be held in trust for the benefit of those children um, as they age and until they become the age uh, that you think they can handle those assets on their own. So I would actually say that anyone who has minor children um, should be considering putting or implementing a living trust as part of their overall estate plan with their will. Yeah, and I know uh, for sure there's a lot of tax benefits of managing your wealth uh, within uh, trusts uh, in your estate planning. I don't know if you want to expand a little bit on, on the current yeah. situation. So, you know, um, setting up a living 
trust has, you know, one of the primary benefits is really the privacy issue too, is that uh, a will is a public document and has to be recorded, um, you know, in the probate court. So everyone can see that. Whereas a living trust is a private document that never has to be recorded anywhere. So that's really, uh, because the privacy uh, of the document is really where, you know, you can do a lot of estate planning and a lot of provisions of that provide for, you know, minimizing Massachusetts and or federal estate tax uh, would be included in the living trust as also um, how to provide for the children. So for example, maybe, you know, you have differing perspectives on, you know, maybe one child uh, would be able to manage their money and, and would be able to get it outright, but you have a different child that maybe, um, you know, those assets should be managed for them for a longer period or stay in trust. So the the living trust allows you to make um, differing provisions for your children or your beneficiaries and also stay private um, from the public. Perfect. And uh, I can see at least a few reasons why that should be the case, uh, even for protection of the privacy of the children. Forget about the, pe- the person that just Correct. passed away. Yeah. yeah. Um, before we jump into like, the types of living trusts that exist out there, um, is, I want to talk a little about the misconceptions of, of trusts. And uh, I know you had a very good, a very good example today. So I don't know if you would like to share that. Yeah, the I think the biggest misconception of a living trust, um, and what we get, you know, clients come to us to talk about is that you know they think that if they set up a living trust and they move their home into it, then the home is protected from creditors, protected from mass health, um, and it just can't be touched. Um, you know, in the event there is a lawsuit against the individual. So that's the biggest misconception. There's a, a variety of different living trusts. You know, the most the, um, the most common trust that people set up is called a revocable trust where, you know, the individual is the settlor, the individual is the trustee, and then they provide for their beneficiaries uh, once they pass. And that trust um, is not... Uh, a creditor protection trust in that if you move your home into it, which is a common technique, it's not that that home is protected from creditors. So I think that's the biggest misconception of uh, trust and that really the trusts are used to avoid probate, uh, to consolidate assets and streamline them um, and have them managed for the benefit of the beneficiaries when someone passes. Um, there, but it doesn't actually um, provide for creditor protection for the person who created the trust. There are mm-hmm. trusts that can be created like that, but it's just, I think that's the biggest misconception that every trust does that. And okay. there's only specific ones that do that. Okay. Um, uh, and before we move, I know you, you mentioned revocable trust, which by default would uh, push us to talk about irrevocable trust. But before we do that, um, I... Uh, here at Lexington, the majority of clients that, that try to start a trust or start a conversation of a trust is to protect their financial assets. And this is usually holdings or equities or a specific financial transactional assets. Um, the one thing I would like to mention for all those listening is that a trust can actually hold any asset pretty much. And I don't know if you want to expand on that. Yeah, so the trust can hold any asset. Um, and one of, one of the common ones that, you know, the trust is good for holding is actually property that's held out of state. Um, because, you know, if a lot of people may own vacation homes or second properties in another state, and if they own them individually, uh, when that individual passes, then a probate needs to be run in the state uh, where that property is located. One good way or a benefit of a living trust, revocable trust, is to actually take title uh, of the property out of state in your living trust so that when something does happen to the individual, that uh, that property just is 
held and owned by the trust, and there's no need to go to a probate through uh, to out of state. So that's um, the trust really can own any type of type of assets. Okay. So let's jump into it. Tell me about a little bit of the types of living trusts that you discussed today. Yeah, so the main living, main types we talked about was one, the revocable trust, and that is the one that uh, is most commonly used. Um, you know, a settlor sets it up, and they're generally the same. The trustee is the same person as the settlor, and it's you know funded during lifetime. Uh, another trust that is common um, is an irrevocable trust where the settler creates it. Uh, the terms are irrevocable. It can't be changed. And more often than not, um, depending on what the circumstances are, the the settler is not the trustee. It's a third party that's the trustee. Hmm. And those irrevocable trusts are mainly used for... Um, advanced estate planning um, techniques, uh, minimizing estate tax um, at the higher levels. Um, now that the federal exemption amount is $11.4 million, um, you know, some individuals may use a revocable trust to, um, if they're over that amount, minimize their federal estate tax. Um, and then another type of trust is what we talked about a little bit, was an asset protection trust. In Massachusetts, um, those trusts are not... Um, valid under state law, but New Hampshire actually has um, a good um, asset protection um, statute and trust that can be created in New Hampshire. So when people talk about setting up a trust to protect their assets, um, they're actually referring to um, setting up a New Hampshire asset protection Mm -hmm. trust. And then the last trust um, is a charitable trust, and that's, you know, if a client or an individual has charitable um, desires or goals to accomplish, the beneficiaries of those trusts are one or more uh, charity. Um, the only thing I wanted to clarify is that uh, 11.4 that you mentioned is for couples, right? So so it's 11.4 per individual. So together really? okay. it's uh, 22.8 million. There you go. So that's after the last tax law change. Yes, correct. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Um, so interestingly enough, yeah, you gave an example today about how a husband or a regular uh, partner in a couple would set up their trust and, um, and kind of like how it differs from the partner to try to get benefit, I guess, tax benefits or usually protect also the beneficiary of it. I don't know if you can walk cause it's really hard, but I'll put this slide actually on the podcast notes so people can see it, oh, okay, sure. but I don't know if you can walk us through, for example, if I am Will, that's the person that you... Yeah, so, um, you know, one of the common um, uses or benefits of using the revocable trust is to allow for, um, you know, a married couple to use their uh, Massachusetts exemption amount, which is $1 million per individual. So in Massachusetts, um, if someone passes and their estate is over $1 million, um, they need to file a Massachusetts estate tax. Now, if they're over $1 million and the assets go automatically to the surviving spouse uh, through a trust or through because of joint property ownership or something like that, then the Massachusetts doesn't impose any Massachusetts estate tax because the surviving spouse um, is entitled to what's called a marital deduction. However, what happens is, and the, the reason we, we implement a lot of revocable trusts uh, for estate tax planning is if everything goes to the surviving spouse, then essentially we've wasted the exemption amount for the first spouse that has passed because now when the second spouse passes, they only have a million, but they received at least a million from their spouse who passed, and now they're over the exemption amount 
Um, and so oh, now, yeah, so what we try to do with the revocable trust is, or the goal of the revocable trust is that when the first spouse passes, you at least fund that person's spouse, uh, that person's trust up to a million dollars to shelter it. So in the future, as that asset grows from a million to two million, three million, four million, whatever amount it is, it never again is subject to Massachusetts or federal estate tax. So you really can save a lot of estate tax. Um, by implementing this two trust system with each spouse having a trust and each spouse funding it to at least a million in assets. Hmm. Um, and so one common technique is, you know, a lot of people own their home jointly. Um, just it's kind of yeah. default. Everyone buys their home and owns it joint joint tenants. But really, ideally, the idea would be to split the ownership of the home so that 50% is in the one spouse's name and 50% is in the other, not their name, in their trust, and 50% is in the other spouse's trust. Um, or another you know, technique is looking at the asset allocations. If one spouse has a significant business that's worth a lot, then maybe that home should be in the other spouse's trust. So just trying to, what we try to do is um, equalize the estate so that each spouse can utilize their million dollar exemption amount fully. <laughs> the way you're talking about it right now, it almost seems that if I'm about to buy a home before I buy it, I should revise my estate planning to see what's the best way yeah, to do this. Yeah, it's good. It's a lot of times, you know, we do estate planning and they've already purchased the, so, the home. So, you know, we recommend them to reallocate it. But what happens is once they're, they become our estate planning clients and they go to buy their second home or another vacation home or an investment property, they give us a call and, you know, just consult with us on how to take title. So. Um, I'm going to move to probably, uh, I have two more questions, and this one is probably the most touchy one, uh, which is selecting the trustee for all these trusts. And uh, that we have seen a lot uh, within the families that we serve here, how it can be a really difficult topic to select a trustee. Uh, sometimes the their own financial advisor can serve as trustee, and uh, that's not something we do here at Lexington uh, often, but it has happened definitely in the past. Um, how would you approach this process of selecting the right trustee? Yeah, so selecting the trustee is always, I think, the um, the most challenging question for clients to decide. And it really, I think, also is um, holds up clients from doing their estate planning because it's just a very daunting, it can be a very daunting emotional. decision, an emotional decision um, for for the clients. But what I, what I tell our clients and, you know, what we recommend is, you know, you just need to pick someone, maybe that someone isn't the perfect person, you know, today, but it can always be changed. Um, and in terms of kind of looking at the characteristics of who should be a trustee, you should definitely try to look within, or we recommend look within your family or your friends, um, or, you know, colleagues and things like that. And it's an individual who is, you know, organized, um, isn't super overwhelmed by just paperwork, um, can kind of understand the, at least the basics of financial um, documents and um, finances and things like that. Um, they don't have to be, you know, um, a financial uh, yeah. advisor or anything like that, but just at least someone who can, you know, be able to seek out, you know, advice from other professionals um, and is willing to be part of and make decisions for the beneficiary. Sometimes, you know, when it happens, the beneficiaries are very young and they're minors and the individual who will be the trustee will have a, a long-term, many, many year relationship with the beneficiaries. So, hmm. um, you know, it's also trying to look to find somebody who has a relationship with your beneficiaries currently and you, you would feel comfortable having um, them interact with your 
beneficiaries for you know a number of years. Yeah, I, I would say as um, as population age, population ages and uh, having a living trust in place has become a common practice um, to make decisions about your wealth while you are a hundred percent rational with your decision making, and we are definitely seeing that more and more uh, just happening. That, yeah. that something happens, you get diagnosed, you, you, you might not know, yeah. and suddenly the decisions are being taken away from you and they might not, not have been what you wanted for your wealth. Yeah, definitely. And I see more and more, you know, as the as the population is living longer, yeah. um, they are also maybe unfortunately, you know, living longer with maybe dementia, yeah. you know, onset of, you know, uh, mental um, deficiencies. So I also see now, you know, clients coming in, with minor children doing their estate planning or young adults, but also, you know, bringing their parents in because yeah. it's important also, you know, to have an organized or it's helpful to have an organized streamlined estate plan for your parents or your living, you know, your living mother or father who recently lost their spouse or something yeah. like that. So, um, to close today's uh, episode, Jennifer, I was going to just ask you to tell us one thing we can do today or tomorrow to start this process. Right on the spot. You should see Jennifer's face right now. The one thing we can start today. I would say um, sit down with your spouse and have a discussion about, you know, make it a goal to put an estate plan in place, you know, mm. within the year. That's That sounds great. Still yeah. March? Still March. Not yep. a good idea in November. <laughs> Not a good idea in November. <laughs> it is, by experience, guys, it is a terrible Thanksgiving conversation. Yes. <laughs> if you want to do it, don't do it on Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, but actually early spring is a good time. Yeah. Uh, you know, you're getting your tax information together. You're yeah, reviewing exactly. things from prior years. I actually do find there is an uptick in clients, you know, because they're just, they have to organize their tax information mm -hmm. as well. And so they're looking at their estate plan. Awesome. So. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I hope you enjoyed your first interview on a podcast. Yeah, that was great. It was not that difficult. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. <laughs> and uh, for all those listening, uh, we're going to put Jennifer's information in the notes of this podcast and feel free to reach out to her. And we're also going to put uh, uh, the slides if she allows us to do it. Uh, if not, we're going to have a little bit of a takeaway for those that, that were not able to attend today's episode. So thank you so much, Jennifer, again. Great. And uh, until next time, uh, this is Empower Women Series. Have a good day. Yeah.